I'm Stephen Morrissey, the managing editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking to Jerry Avorn, a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and chief of the Division of Pharmacoepidemiology and Pharmacoeconomics at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Avorn has written a perspective article on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the thalidomide disaster, and he's here to discuss our evolving approach to drug safety. Dr. Avorn, in your perspective article, you tell the story of thalidomide. Can you remind us what the issues were around that drug? Well, back in the uh, late 1950s and the very beginning of the 1960s, it was a drug that was heavily used primarily in, in Europe and outside the U.S. as a so-called safe sleeping pill that could enable people to um, go to bed at night, fall asleep without the risks of other drugs in that um, indication, which included the barbiturates at that time. It was also promoted as a good drug for morning sickness for pregnant women. And of course, the problem was that it turns out that women who took it in the first trimester of pregnancy were exceedingly uh, at risk of giving birth to children who had bad limb reduction deformities such that they were born with little flippers instead of arms or legs, which of course was a very devastating disability. There really were very either primitive or non-existent standards in many countries for accepting drugs for use in the marketplace. And the level of scientific inquiry and the quality of the clinical trials was just much lower than anything we're used to now. And it turns out that thalidomide, under a variety of different brand names all over the world, was approved for use based on really no adequate testing in pregnant women and not even very good uh, assessment of its, of its risks in other people either. Can you give us some other examples of drug safety disasters of earlier eras that also played a part in shaping regulatory policy? Well, interestingly, if you look back at the history of the FDA in the United States, it turns out that we seem to make policies based on drug crises. And so the whole origin of the FDA in 1906 was based on scandals that were being uncovered about uh, patent medicines and also about the food piece of FDA around the way meat was being processed. And that led to the creation of the Pure Food and Drug Act uh, in response to that, that national um, concern that developed. In 1938, uh, there was a disaster in which sulfonylamide elixir, one of the early pre-antibiotics, was being uh, mixed with a different solvent, which turned out to be poisonous. And a uh, hundred some odd children were killed by that. And that led to new legislation in, in the late 30s empowering FDA to have more control over the purity of medicines. And thalidomide was the episode in the 1960s that also gave the nation a new understanding of why it's a good idea for the government to be able to require companies to show that their drugs are both safe and effective. Francis Kelsey, who was a new medical review officer at the FDA at the time, is the hero of the thalidomide story, the person who refused to approve the drug for marketing in the United States. What did she do differently from her predecessors and her colleagues? Well, it was really a drug that had been uh, approved in most every uh, country on earth that had any kind of an approval process except for the U.S. It started in Germany and it swept through Europe and regulatory authorities in virtually every country uh, said, looks fine, let's go ahead and allow the company to sell it. 
But Dr. Kelsey at the FDA was really the first regulator to say, hey, wait a minute, the data about its safety and about possible side effects are really not very complete. Uh, one quotation I remember was that uh, she said, these are not clinical trials, they're testimonials. And the evidence about its, its effectiveness was uh, more heavily reliant on either small inadequate series or anecdotes. And more importantly, there had really been no systematic testing of the drug throughout pregnancy, even though it was being marketed as a drug for morning sickness in pregnancy. So what does the FDA do differently these days? Well, thanks in, in large part to that seminal moment when Dr. Kelsey said to the company, which was, of course, shocked and offended that its data were not deemed adequate, uh, Dr. Kelsey said, wait a minute, we cannot approve this drug for use in the U.S. until you come back with better safety studies. And there were some reports of some uh, neuropathy that she was concerned about and wondering what that might do if this drug crossed the placenta. And a lot of things which today we take for granted as routine safety testing were at that point uh, really not standard practice at all. So one of the things that FDA does differently now, and in fact, most other regulatory agencies throughout the industrialized world do differently, is to really expect the manufacturer to provide uh, a rather complete uh, dossier of evidence about the drug's safety and about the drug's efficacy before they approve it for marketing. Some critics argue that the FDA is too beholden to industry, given that it's funded in part by user fees. And of course, others perceive it as standing in the way of innovation. To what extent do you think it manages to strike an appropriate balance? A problem FDA has had really going back to the late 1980s uh, when there were a lot of new AIDS drugs that were in the approval pipeline but weren't quite getting out the door at FDA was that it has been severely understaffed and they just have not had the scientific review officer person power that they need to be able to evaluate drug applications and approve them. One solution to that uh, was proposed in 1992 and enacted in 1992, in which it became clear that Congress was not prepared to give FDA a larger budget to hire enough scientific officers to do the work it needed to do. But the pharmaceutical industry stepped in and said, we will cover those costs by sending along a check, in effect, uh, with every drug application that needs to be reviewed, and that money can be used as a user fee to pay for the salaries of FDA scientists. And since then, there has been some concern, both within the FDA on the part of some of its scientific review staff, as well as outside the FDA, about whether the fact that the pharmaceutical industry is now paying for over half of the salary costs of the physicians and other scientists who review drugs made by those very companies, whether that might pose an organizational and conflict of interest problem within the, the FDA. And Professor Carpenter and I had a paper in the journal uh, a few years back looking at that problem and concluding that, yes, this may be a difficult problem within FDA about having to review drugs when, in effect, one salary is being paid by the companies whose products you're reviewing. So that that is a worry. It's a worry that's particularly current today because right now we are looking at a renewal of the User Fee Act that will take place in the coming uh, 12 months or so. And it looks, again, as if Congress is not prepared to underwrite the salaries of FDA staffers out of the federal budget, and the agency will once again need to go hat in hand to the pharmaceutical industry asking them to please pay their salaries. And many of us worry that that's not a good way to be doing it, but it looks like in the current fiscal environment that may be what happens. 
Now, on the point of innovation, uh, it is true that up until this year, there has really been a flattening out of the rate of new drug approvals, especially for innovative, interesting new drugs, as opposed to just um, revisions of old drugs. And uh, the industry has sometimes said that that's the problem of, of caused by FDA because they make the review process too lengthy and cumbersome. In fact, when one looks at the data, FDA actually is really pretty quick these days uh, on a par with any other regulatory agency in the world. And once they get a completed application, they turn it around in pretty short order. So the problem is not that FDA sits on applications anymore. That has not been a problem for many, many years. The problem really does seem to be that, unfortunately, industry does not seem to be bringing to FDA a lot of exciting new drugs to approve. And that really is not something we can blame FDA for. You mentioned that Vioxx inspired new legislation in 2007. Can you tell us a bit about that legislation and what it has changed? Yes, in, in keeping with this idea that we seem to make drug policy in response to crises, it's beginning to be pretty clear that Vioxx was the thalidomide of our era. That is, just as in 1961 there was some very important legislation giving FDA authority to demand that a company show a drug work before it could be marketed, which today seems, well, of course, that's the way it ought to be. That was not the case in 61, and that legislation was probably going to go down in flames in Congress because it was seen as the government interfering with doctors and drug companies, and uh, that's not the role of Washington bureaucrats. And thalidomide turned that around and actually enabled uh, passage of that legislation. Similarly, when Vioxx was taken off the market in 2004, after being taken by about 20 million Americans over five years, because it turned out to about double the risk of heart attack and stroke, a lot of people, both in Congress and in the medical profession and in the country in general, began asking, what's wrong with our drug surveillance process or review process such that we can have a drug that doubles the risk of a very bad event, is not really a stronger analgesic than others that were available on the market, and yet it was five years before we knew that that was a problem. We must be doing, we must, we have to do a better job in figuring out how we can detect drug side effects. And so that led to legislation in 2007 that gave the FDA new powers to conduct systematic post-marketing safety surveillance and also new authority over companies to get them to help define and manage the risk of their drugs. You mentioned REMS in particular, risk evaluation and mitigation strategies. Can you tell us how well these work? Yes, this is part of the recognition that any drug that is effective enough to work is almost certainly going to do things you don't intend for it to do. And that is probably part and parcel of any drug with any efficacy at all. And so the question is not, can we find a completely risk-free drug? Or can we do something about the approval process to uh, make drugs perfectly safe? But rather, to accept the fact that there are going to be occasional side effects. And the goal really becomes, how do we define them as quickly as possible? And then how do we reduce their occurrence at the same time that we're using the drug in ways that will benefit patients. And so risk evaluation and mitigation strategies, or REMS, are a tool that Congress gave FDA in that 2007 legislation in the wake of Vioxx that gives the agency some authority to require that a company take some proactive action once a drug is approved that will attempt to say, let's have it used 
in ways that will maximize its benefit, but will also prevent people from getting it who shouldn't be getting it, or identify problems and stop them as early as we can. Fifty years ago, regulation was apparently more lax in Europe than in the United States. How does the European system work today? As with many things in our globalized world, things are much more similar than different now across the industrialized countries. There are many areas in which uh, the FDA and the European Medicines Authority, or EMA, as well as the authorities in Canada, Japan, Australia, really are on very similar wavelengths. For some drugs, we're a little quicker than the Europeans are uh, in terms of cancer drugs, for example. For other drugs, they're sometimes a little quicker than we are. Uh, both in approving and, in the case of Avandia, rosiglitazone for diabetes, in terms of shutting off the drug when it becomes clear that it's not safe. But for the most part, there is now a global pharmacoepidemiology community in the sense that everybody looks at the same data and most regulatory authorities come to very similar decisions at about the same time. What else, in your view, should or could the FDA be doing to protect Americans against harm from drugs? Well, one of the tough things for the FDA is that it does not have authority really over how drugs are used. And even with the existence of these risk evaluation and mitigation strategies, it can't really be there on the front lines. And in fact, it was explicitly forbidden from being there on the front lines regulating how doctors prescribe drugs. So of course, once a drug is marketed, it is legal for a physician to use it in any way he or she chooses. And that's not something FDA has jurisdiction over. It may be that that's not a responsibility that we should try to load on FDA's shoulders. It may be that the proper use of drugs is something which really ought to be in the hands of the healthcare delivery system itself, whether by means of healthcare systems or other means of trying to optimize use. I'm not sure you can do that at the stage of, of approval of a drug. Since, as you say, all active compounds have some potential for harm, how do you balance those risks against the benefits? The question has been looked at as, does the drug work? And unfortunately, work sometimes means, often means, that a given new drug is more effective than placebo in achieving a, a change in a lab test. And so many of us are concerned that that's really a suboptimal definition of does it work. And at the same time, there's this almost qualitative look at, well, what are the bad things that it does? But there's not yet a systematic, quantitative, rigorous comparison of the harms versus the benefits in any kind of a numerical way, which I think we currently do have techniques to do, uh, but we have not yet applied them. It's more kind of the judgment of the FDA uh, scientific officers, advisory committees, and ultimately the uh, commissioner, that given a particular combination of risks, a drug is safe enough to be approved. And ideally, we'll move toward an era in which there is, with the movement toward comparative effectiveness research, a much more quantitative assessment of here is the downside measured in terms of perhaps uh, quality-adjusted life years or amount of morbidity caused as compared with the upside of amount of morbidity prevented that one can really look at in a rigorous way as opposed to saying, well, it's safe enough given how good it is, which is not really an intuitive judgment, ideally. Thank you, Dr. Avorn. You're welcome.